Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Sally Dodson, Sal, aka Badass Mother. She's coming to us live from Merseyside, England, just outside of the Republic of Liverpool. We discuss politics, society, sports, and many other topics. I hope you enjoy the show. Solidarity forever. social justice warrior. She is fighting for change, but don't call her a revolutionary. She doesn't want to be taken down by the man. Isn't that right? That is absolutely right. They go after uh, revolutionaries and dissidents, don't they? Well, yeah, they do, unfortunately. If you look at any famous historical pacifist, most of them are dead. And uh, not by their own hand. So that's funny, isn't it? But here we are in dystopia. What's the consequences of speaking truth to power? What's the what's the consequences of going against the establishment? It certainly seems like the establishment has chosen a side in the Israel-Palestine conflict. I think mo- much of the population is sympathetic with the Palestinians and the genocide that the Israelis are carrying out right now, all thanks to American political, economic, and military support. It's certainly tough in the UK, where you're coming from, and in the United States to support uh, Palestinians. You get censored and you know, sometimes your account gets banned or, you know, all sorts of different things. At least we're not getting bombed, though. The, the consequences aren't as dire as the Palestinians are facing. But what, what's it like, uh, you know, to kind of resist the establishment, to speak truth to power, to, a, a go, to go against, um, you know, the mainstream uh, political consensus in your country or maybe my country? Um, <clears throat> from a personal point of view, it's it's actually not easy for every like I get traction on Twitter, I think, because I'm very opinionated on certain things and I have no truck with the stupid and ill-educated who speak on things they know nothing about and people seem to like that. But I feel it every time I do it and I don't like doing it. It's just something I have a skill for that I adopted as a child um, inadvertently and it's popular but it makes me feel sick every time I do it because I'm not that person I'm not a right-wing person who enjoys causing harm to other people which seems to be their only difference between them and normal people Um, I do also never forget that I am privileged to be in a position where I can do it because obviously in many countries you cannot, you don't have the facilities to do it or if you do, you will get punished for it. Um, And I feel like more people should just speak out because that's literally as technology and the arrival of it has proven, 
it's affecting the establishment, which is why I believe we're heading towards, if not already at a fever pitch. And I think this Middle East conflict, such as it is now, um, has come to a 75 year head. And having sat and watched the world for many years from my sick bed, it, it does seem to be a global problem. And I don't think it's just limited to the places we get media coverage of because for years you know you've got somalia you've got the yemen you've got the uyghurs in china the the struggles are real and they're global and they've been going on for years as the israeli-palestine conflict we'll call it you know is playing out now but clearly people have had enough i mean to see the amount of people marching on london and westminster yesterday i don't know if you've seen it in any broadcast over in america Oh, no, they don't televise that stuff. They, they don't televise it. You have to go to social media to see it. Well, no, that stuff enough, is censored. <laughs> I, I went on the Brexit march a couple of months ago, and there was, I don't know, between twenty and 40,000 people. And they didn't tell it. was a complete blackout. Nowhere televised it at all. I think The Guardian reported on it. Maybe that was it. Um, yeah, they're slightly, they're pretty centrist, but, right? The Guardian may we, be a little bit left-leaning in some instances, but mostly pretty centrist, still in support of yeah, capitalism Guardian, and state power, I guess, right? like left-wing breadcrumbs in it um but the, BB, yeah. the bbc actually covered what they said was a hundred thousand people now i don't know what a hundred thousand people looks like but that looked like millions yeah. what i imagine to be a lot more than a hundred thousand people and so for, yeah. to get british people off their asses is no mean feat this country should have been on fire five years ago the pandemic's come along they've literally the government have taken a trillion pounds embezzled let's call it out of the system which they're going to get their asses bit for eventually but the british people didn't get on the feet for that they didn't get on the feet for the fact that we're paying the highest gas and electricity costs in the world they didn't get on the feet for the fact that the government are systematically killing more disabled people than hitler managed via austerity and psychological violence but they've got off their seats now so i'm hoping we're in for a massive winter of discontent yeah, I hope so too. I mean, you gotta you gotta maintain hope, uh, optimism of uh, will, but uh, pessimism of intellect. And uh, yeah, to get uh, the English people and people in the UK out from the pub and away from their uh, plate of uh, what uh, fish and chips and their warm beer, right? That's a that's a that's no small feat. <laughs> let me stop. Let me stop you there. Just to touch on the economy, going back to pubs. I walked into a pub last week to watch England play in the semi-final of the Rugby World Cup. And I asked the lady if they were showing the match. And she said, on a Saturday, no, we're not. We're closing at nine o'clock. Now, I don't, I don't go out very much, so I don't know what's going on sort of in society with like going out for drinks and socialising because it's been a long time. But for a pub to shut at nine o'clock on a Saturday, it's mental compared to... It's our culture. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but no, that's, you know, that's just a sign of the country's on fire. Sorry, what was the question? Well, no, but I want to get back to it. I, I don't know. I ask questions, but sometimes it's more rhetoric. But I think those in power want to keep, I want to kind of go back to some of the things you said uh -huh. um, a, a few minutes ago. 
They want to keep the population ignorant, propagandized, mm-hmm. ill-informed, yep. lots of misinformation. They want to keep the truth secret. Yeah. They want to suppress information. They want to suppress uh, huge social movements like, you know, support of the Palestinians and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I saw an article, uh, Russia called what they're doing um, in Palestine uh, a war crime. I mean, it's genocide. It's slaughter. It is um, just complete violence. It's not Mental. a war. Yeah, I mean, it's not a war. It's one-sided. The violence every once in a while, um, it's pretty one-sided. Let me, I'm a big Noam Chomsky fan. He didn't, mm-hmm. um, he didn't come out and say this um, recently. Actually, uh, he's kind of went dark. He's 94 years old. I hope he's doing well. He doesn't make mm-hmm. public appearances very often anymore, so I'm sure this was, mm-hmm. I don't know when this was taken from, but he's been talking about the Palestinians. he got several books written by Chomsky on Gaza and Palestine. Uh, but here's a Chomsky quote here I'm reading here. Took it from Twitter. Again, this is not a recent quote. You can take my water, burn my olive trees, destroy my house, take my job, steal my land, imprison my father, kill my mother, bombard my country, starve us all, humiliate us all, but I am to blame. I shot a rocket back. So he was kind of yeah. speaking about what I it's like. I saw that the other day, yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, he doesn't condone terrorism or violence, um, but certainly, you know, the, these attacks from Hamas were provoked for decades, decades of ill treatment by the um, by the Israelis taking their land. Uh, but yeah, Russia came out and said, you know, it's a war crime what Israel is doing right now in Gaza, and it is. But you must also, you, you must maintain principles. You know, you can't have a um, relative view of ethics and morality in the world. So obviously what Russia is doing in Ukraine is also a war crime. Uh, the Ukrainian, Ukrainians are victimized, but... As Chomsky would say in his book, you know, Manufacturing Consent, um, the Ukrainians are worthy victims. They they have a political benefit to us. That's why we are, I say as an American, on the side of Ukraine, you know, in, in their defense from Russia and their attack uh, from Russia. And it's a very crooked government. A very, I think it was the most uh, corrupt government in Europe prior to the Russian invasion. But now it's supposed to be some beacon of democracy, which is ludicrous. But again, Ukrainians are the victims here in that conflict. And of course, anyone watching it with a half of a brain can see that um, the Palestinians are victimized here. I mean, it's a one-sided conflict. It's a slaughter. It's genocide. It's not a war. Uh, th- th- what's left of Palestine is basically a parking lot, you know, rubble in a parking lot. It looks like, you know, a natural disaster went through there. It is just, it's just awful. Um, you know, and I certainly don't con- condone the Hamas, Hamas attacks, Hamas um, you know, and the innocent um, Israelis killed there. But again, I think it was provoked. There's lots of violence. Typically, it's one-sided. Uh, and every once in a while, you know, the Palestinians respond. And again, I don't, I don't condone terrorism and the killing of innocent Israelis either. Um, but, you know, what, what they're doing in response, the escalation of violence is just awful. It's a crime against humanity. It's a war crime, however you see it. Uh, I support the state of Palestine. I recognize it. But I guess it would be a crime against humanity because I don't think Israel or the United States even um, acknowledge that Palestine is a real country. You know, and, and, and in that mm. instance, they have no human rights. You know, they, and I think mm. the Palestinians have the right to exist. Although, although people yeah. in power in Israel and the United States probably don't believe that. And there's probably a lot of people in the UK. UK is kind of like the U.S. lapdog. <laughs> the UK and Israel kind of do oh, the yeah. bidding of the United States. I think that's kind of how I see it. You know, the United States makes a uh, <laughs> the United States makes a political um, move, you know, like in Iraq or, um, you know, in, in Ukraine and typically Israel and, uh, the UK come, come behind and, you know, support the masters. So it's kind of how it goes. Yeah, totally agree.
What about the what about the population and those in power though? Keeping um, or I'm sorry, those in power keeping the population ignorant, ill-informed, propagandized, uh, the censorship of the facts, yeah. the news, the slanting of the bias. The one thing yeah. I would pick you up on when you said that education keeps everyone thick. It doesn't keep everyone thick. It keeps everyone thick that needs to go to a state school. Certainly in the UK, you get taught about politics and you know the value of money and how to use it. If you go to private school, not if you go to state school. I'm sure that's just a massive coincidence, um, but it is having a gargantuan effect, and it is. Um, it, it's basically sorting. Well, the, the the system, let's call it, is sorting out the biggest sociopaths and psychopaths from the rest of us. It's like a self-sorting system. Politics, certainly in this country and your country, and yeah. I suppose most Western, let's quote unquote right. democracies, which is a load of bullshit. Right. No, I mean, um, Princeton came out with a study that said 90% of the US population is disenfranchised. Only the top 10% on the income scale are their opinions uh, considered well, when policy decisions are made in Washington. So it's an oligarchy. Princeton University, you know, they are an elite Ivy League school. I'm sure it's very similar in the UK. Literally, Oxford and Cambridge, exactly the same thing. Um, However, what what I've done, I think I've managed to simplify it a bit because if you take, I I genuinely think that if you took governments and gobshites, sorry to swear, out of countries and just left the rational people to sort shit out, there wouldn't be any war because those rational people wouldn't want to kill anybody else because that's not what rational people do. Therefore, these warmongers and these people who profit from the manufacture of said weapons and munitions. Sorry, I've lost my my train of thought. They call it it defense. They call the weapons industries these merchants of death, these angels of death. They They call it defense. How is is it defending – what's going on in Gaza defending the United States? You know, how is what's going on in the Ukraine defending U.S. democracy or in Iraq or Afghanistan? It's not defense, it's offense, of course. It's it's protecting bottom lines. That's all it's protecting because all these one percenters care about is their wealth. And what – do you know what does me in? They've got more money than they could use in – 10, 100 lifetimes. They can't actually use it. They can bequeath it to their kids and those people they think are superior to everybody else. But then they tell everyone else you've got to make your own way in life. It doesn't equate. But they do. No, I you've got to work. You've got to work hard for it. I worked hard for it, all on yeah. my own, and with the two million that my family gave me. That's what they tell yeah, us. They, and some people actually they, buy it somehow. Some people actually buy that bullshit. Like Trump, that big self-made fucking genius. Sorry, genius. But I, hey, I, I guess we're swearing, so we'll just swear. That's fine. We'll, okay. We'll, <laughs> I usually try to keep it. Uh, I, I sometimes it's explicit, sometimes it's not, but it's all good. We can swear today. It's, it's a swear day. We're, we're all mad. You know what I mean? <laughs> we're mad today. We're mad as hell, and we're going to tell people about it. So I, I have here. Okay, so I have here, I tweeted this the other day. Hey, remember when the Panama, Panama Papers came out? I love the Panama Papers. I read a book on it. Very interesting. I think they came out with the Pandora Papers, too. All essentially massive leaks of information 
mm-hmm. with with backed up by lots and lots of resources and journalists. Uh, basically, webs webs of um, networks. You know, where the oh, yeah. where the global elite and the rich and powerful. Zelensky yeah. was even named in it, the president of that uh, that corrupt country in Europe, Ukraine, the uh, that we're supposed to be defending democracy for. Again, they're victims, of course, the people. But I, I don't mm-hmm. support the elites there in Ukraine or that government. But I do support the people. But hey, remember when the Panama Papers? This is from Colin Taylor. I just tweeted, retweeted whatever mm-hmm. he said. Hey, remember when the Panama Papers came out and revealed that all the rich of the world are part of an enormous criminal criminal conspiracy to dodge taxes and hoard stolen wealth in offshore accounts, and literally nothing happened. And then there was mm-hmm. a uh, then there was a someone someone um, commented, no, not not quite true. The reporter behind the story, Daphne uh, Serranu Serana. Galizia um, was murdered. I, I probably butchered the pronunciation, but yeah, they. Uh, this was uh, retweeted wow, thousands and thousands of times. Awesome, very happy to see that uh, was a popular tweet. Uh, but anyways, um, yeah, I mean these glo- these global um, rings where elites hide their money. Mm-hmm. I saw an article. Nobody even really knows. I saw an article since the deregulation of the economic system. I have a solo pod. I'm going to be talking about the banking industry. It's a lot of research. It's going to take me months to put together, but I'm kind of working on it right now. This research mm-hmm. and there's like 21, and this is an old article, like from maybe five years ago. So it's probably you might even be able to double this money. Nobody really knows. These figures are just whatever. But 21 trillion dollars of black money out there in the economy that nobody can really account oh, yeah. for and hoarded in offshore networks and tax havens and all that kind of stuff. While people starve. Yeah. And and I was um yeah I read this tweet. Sometimes these money figures are just so huge and baffling. Um, but like you know I make a decent salary, not five hundred thousand dollars a year, but pretty decent you know in U.S. dollars. But I read something like if you're getting a five percent return on ten million dollars in this day and age, it's really not a lot of money. If you're getting a five percent return on ten million dollars, you can live on five hundred grand a year. Five hundred grand a yeah. year. That, I mean I mean people in Gaza are probably living on. And he's a day, you know, if that, I mean, Listen, you know, it's, it's incredible. We've got, we've currently got the wealthiest prime minister we've ever had in the history of this country. Whose wife. Right. No, I think he's number one. Yeah. Whose wife outstrips his wealth tenfold. That man, Rishi Sunak, I don't know how many people know this, that horrible little pipsqueak weasel psychopath who can lie like he can order coffee. He was part of the banking team that sent the world into recession in 2006. He made millions off that, off sending everybody else down the spout. That man is a mass murderer before he even stepped into this government. And then he perpetuates democide for 13 years. He should be in prison. He should never see the light of day again. They actually, it's just come out in our COVID inquiry, you know, learning from mistakes and hopefully finding some criminal cases. The chief scientific advisor to the government during the COVID pandemic referred to Rishi Sunak, who at that time was Chancellor of the Exchequer, as Dr. Death. Wow. Because he instituted the Eat Out to Help Out scheme that they knew would spread the virus and kill people, and they did it deliberately. So I don't mean to bring COVID. We could have used the COVID pandemic to transform the economy. You know, we actually started giving money to people directly. Um, We helped out with. Um, child poverty here in the United States and helping, you know, feed uh, hungry children, which is always, you know, a great thing. Housing, I think in California, housing homeless people, um, you know, putting student debtors, uh, putting their their loans on hold, all sorts of great things. Um, Work from home so we can kind of decrease our carbon footprint. There are a lot of these jobs and offices that have no purpose. We have no reason to be driving these 
giant office buildings five days a week in these major cities. A lot of these pointless jobs we can do on spreadsheets at home. Um, but, you know, it's just business-backed as, as usual. We didn't do any of those things. And um, with the global financial collapse of 2008 or so, uh, Obama on his economic team essentially put the same people that crashed the economy in leadership roles and positions. And what did they do? These big, these banks that were too big to fail came out bigger and richer than ever after the you know financial crisis. So I think it would be a lot like having um, executives on in big tobacco companies write uh, child smoking laws. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just ridiculous. The criminals that crashed the economy were the same people that redesigned the economy. And we had an awesome and great opportunity with COVID to just transform the world and transform the economy, you know, Green New Deal, all sorts of things. Uh, And of course, you know, once COVID, which will probably never go away completely, but once it, you know, kind of um, it's out of the public conscious now, certainly uh, everything is back to business as usual. Work from home. They're trying to, you know, kind of get rid of that or limit it a little bit. And it's just makes no sense because one of the reasons is the commercial real estate bubble and those in power say it's about to burst. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the profits were up during the COVID economy. Um, you know, high, record profits as, as I biggest see it, records, you know, transfer of wealth. Yeah, biggest transfer of wealth, yeah, trillions of dollars. Uh, you know, it's almost directly, you know, a, a, a direct transfer from rich to poor. But, you know, one of the biggest transfers yeah. of wealth in human history, uh, record profits, which as I see it, record stolen wages. Productivity was at or near all-time highs. And the only reason, you know, it's not a productivity thing to go and return to the office. The only thing I've been seeing is this massive commercial real estate bubble. We don't need these giant office buildings. We don't need to be driving our gas-guzzling cars running on dinosaur bones. You know, a lot of the stuff we can yeah. Where we can do it, you know, from the comfort of our homes. Um, but they also want to control us. You know, they want direct supervision o- over workers and control their lives. Mm-hmm. They don't like our t- autonomy and freedom that we can kind of sit home and do these jobs. They want to be able to monitor us and, you know, control our lives. And that's really the main two reasons I see to end work from home. So they can control us. And so that mm-hmm. they can, um, you know, so that there's not this massive commercial real estate bubble. But what we could yeah. do is turn these um, office buildings into drastically needed affordi- affordable housing. There are millions of vacant homes in the United States and a few hundred thousand, uh, maybe 500,000 or so homeless people. So we don't have a homeless problem. We have a lack of will problem. You know, over the course of yeah. a month, we could kind of turn these vacant homes into you know places where homeless people could live. But see, it's not part of the public conscious. Uh, we could easily do this and it wouldn't take a lot of time or money i don't think um and it, it would transform it but you know again there there has to be scarcity of housing you know and, and the housing is continuing to go up inflation's insane uh and has been i'm sure you, you talked about the cost of living crisis maybe you could talk about it in the uk right now uh, i mean yes. the highest cost uh for energy yes. and stuff what are you guys experiencing there with your cost of living crisis going on i i i don't have the words because I don't understand why the majority of British people are just happy to be shafted up the arse by these energy companies who are, it, 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 there's no reasoning for their shoving the prices up. Nothing's costing them any more money. Greedflation. Greedflation. Do you remember our shortest serving prime minister of last year, Liz Letters Trust? I do. Right, the, the lettuce woman. Right. I think she's getting a couple hundred thousand a year pension for that, what, month or two she had uh, in power. Um, she's going to be set for life. She's hundreds of thousands of dollars a year just for that, just for making uh, prime minister for a couple months. 
that cheese festering automaton is going to get £115,000 for the rest of her life just for security measures. Don't even get me started because she should be in prison. Also, they are murderers. Um, but where was I going? Anyway, That's a living crisis. Thank you, yeah. She went into a meeting with Shell a day before they announced putting their prices up again and they donated to the Tory party and it's all in plain sight. Nobody gives a shit. What the fuck? How is this all allowed to happen? It's just gone fully off the scale. This is why I come back to psychology all the time because yeah. the Mad King George would have seemed reasonable compared to these people. <laughs> honestly, yeah, honestly. What do they have? What do they have to do to prove that they are just a gang of ultimate psychopaths and sociopaths? Because they're already doing it. Over a million people have died in this country in the last 13 years due to austerity. The government were warned about this. We've had reports, I've got some notes here. We've had reports from the UN who, in 2016, uh, their report highlighted the frequent portrayal of disabled people by the UK public and media as lazy and putting a burden on society. Oh, to taxpayers, sorry. So that was that's proven. The EFCR, I'm not sure if Hitler. I don't. I don't know if Hitler said anything worse. I think that may, might be mild, even coming from Hitler. You know. Let me come back to him. Uh, the European Court of Human Rights has been criticising since 2016, also, and have accused the government of systematic violations against disabled people. Hitler killed 250,000 disabled and vulnerable people. This government have killed over a million, and we're still clocking them every day. Just under the de- just people waiting on benefits decisions, around three people a day on average kill themselves. And again, the government were warned about this in 2016. And they doubled down on it and made things worse. We only got an inflationary pay rise beginning of April this year to bring us nearly up to inflation. And we are still our oh, state pension. It makes me sick to my stomach. They're putting up the age of pension as well. Um, yeah, I, so I think they were burning France to the ground for uh, increasing the age by two years. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. I really hope that yeah. if they do this, the UK comes out and protests it like the French did. You, I, yeah. I wish that would... Wish, wishful thinking, right? Wishful thinking. The same in the United States. I mean, it's very rare. The only, the only time people, you know, kind of go out and protest is when there's, like, another, you know, cop killing over a, an African-American, which happens all too frequently. But when we get a video of one, that seems like the only time people actually riot, which is a bad thing, but it's nice to see, you know, some resistance from time to time. Typically, and unfortunately, it only occurs when there's a Republican in the White House. For some reason, people seem less apt to protest when there's a Democrat in power. I just looked at some recent... Uh, uh, opinion uh, approval ratings. Biden is at or near all time low for his administration. Thirty seven percent approve of Biden. I think it's over fifty percent or near fifty percent disapprove. Those are Trump numbers. So Biden is very unpopular. His government is very unpopular. Congress is very unpopular at or near single digit approval ratings. And I saw after the student loan debacle, the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, was hovering around 20% approval. So public trust in the United States and public institutions are at or near all-time lows. It's not good. But see, what we don't get is any choices. We don't get the. We don't get any differences. We don't get choices. Biden's going to be running again, and it might even be a rematch to Trump. So we have two bums, two criminals are going to going to go and run for election. Usually in the United States, the political system gives us. Uh, two terrible choices, and we have to vote for the least bad choice. It's not a good political well, that's, system. That's literally where we are right now. 
Um, we have a first past the post system, which I think you do too. I could What's be wrong. And uh, a first past the post voting system. So uh, whoever. I'm not familiar. Go ahead and talk, talk about it. Oh God, not my field of expertise. I understand it, but I'm not sure I can explain it. It's a bit like the football offside rule. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's essentially in the last election, um, my figures are going to be there or thereabouts. The Tories won government with only 40% of the vote. Okay. Because the, obviously the other votes were split between other parties. Yeah, we have gerrymandering so, too. So like they lump all the people that vote Democrat into the cities. Uh, so like the vast majority of the population are in like a Republican region and all the Democrats, even though there's a lot more Democrats in this, in this country, the Republicans can win election with a minority, you know, because of the gerrymandering. Yeah. yeah our system is very crooked. We have two business parties um, with, we have one business party, I should say, with two factions in the United States and they're really all that, but, not, not all that much different. Maybe you could talk about the Tories and the labor party. Um, yeah. Probably totally. pretty similar too, right? I mean, there are some differences between the Tories and the labor, I think most people, at least that, that I'm Twitter friends with and stuff, uh, despise the Tories, but labor isn't all that much better, are they? Well, let me tell you, Jesus H. Christ. Um, no, I, I long, well, I'll say long ago, probably six, seven years ago, came to the conclusion that we're living in a simulation and red and blue are different shades of the same kind of shit, frankly. Yeah. Um. And this is further backed up a few years down the line now by the fact that we've got this son of a tool maker that we never stop hearing about. His dad was the manager of a tool factory, so he wasn't, you know, all that downtrodden and working class like he was. At least his dad wasn't a banker, right? At least his dad wasn't an executive banker or something like that. I guess that's but that, positive. But that's, yeah, but that's, that's his whole hinge, and that's nothing to hinge on because yeah. it's bullshit because the man is an establishment stooge who's got Maxwell right up his backside. Who are you talking about? Keir Starmer. Yeah, yeah. The Tories are just a cult of psychopaths and sociopaths. They just are. And there's no one who can disprove that. And I've spoken to enough psychologists to know that my thesis is absolutely spot on. They are just off the charts, yeah. money-hungry, audacious psychopaths. If, imagine if it was anything else they craved that wasn't money. Imagine if it was anything else. They'd be locked up right. for being nuts, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but to go back to, like, Labour's supposed to be the less murdery party, a bit like the Dems are for you. They're not great, but they're much less murdery, so we'll get them back in. And all it is is a constant generational cycle of these knobheads who, I think due to technology and freedom of information, are being found out for exactly what they are and who they are. And this is, it's like a race to the bottom. It's like they're trying to suck everything they can out of all the systems before they know that revolution's upon us, because it's happening. It's going to happen. I, I saw this as a meme. This was a meme, but it kind of goes to your talking point. If there was like a monkey that hoarded all the bananas, you know, 99% of the bananas, biologists yeah. would be going there and like doing studies. Like what's wrong with this? What the fuck's wrong? Yeah. yeah. But when it's a human being, they get the cover of Forbes, you know, for hoarding 99% of the world's wealth. It's absurd. Uh, but yeah, it, it's a really messed up system, a system where, you know, in the United States, uh, the Supreme Court equated speech with money. So essentially, if you give money to political candidates, 
uh, Citizens United and that sort of thing. That's your free speech. That's your right. And these corporations yeah. are have the rights of immortal persons. They now buy elections, you know, right in the open. Uh, it's really disgusting. I think it's, it takes something like $7 billion to run for president of the United States. So I don't have that kind you know, of cheese laying around. But I'm sure it's not much different in the UK either. Do you know, this might make you giggle, but in my research a few years back, it's a little bit off mostly that right and left were just as bad as each other. Nancy Pelosi. Oh, wow. She, yeah, she's awful. <laughs> Piece of, oh my god, that uh, she's not one of mine, so I don't like to, right, you know, right. no, she's bad. Call her very, names, very bad. But, oh my, that, that was when I knew they're yeah. just the same shite in different forms. So, so, you know, what's what does this Stormer character where did he come from? What does he stand for? Is he just kind of like mm. another neoliberal well, privatization and all that mm. kind of stuff? Or, well, a couple of weeks ago on the news, he stood for. Uh, you know, starving the Palestinians, and he's had to massively backtrack from that. Yeah. He has come out as this. Jeremy Corbyn wasn't suitable for the establishment because he was a pacifist. You see, yeah. and pacifists don't make any money because capitalists can't possibly think outside the box and contemplate making money out of things that do good for humanity because they're fucking mental. <laughs> Not that I'm angry. Um, so Jeremy Corbyn just didn't suit the narrative at all, even though he, you know, he'd done good and done the right things. A man who communicates with terrorists because what you use fucking ESP? I don't know. So along comes Starmer. He suits the mold. He's all clean cut. He's all very weft tidy. Let's call it. Yeah. Jury's out on that, but I need to know more. Um, and yeah, he looks the part. He sounds the part. There are still an enormous amount of people in this country somehow that buy and read newspapers and believe what they print, which is baffling to me because we are years down the propaganda line. There isn't a word that comes out in the newspapers that is true or is balanced and fair. It is all whatever the government rhetoric is. That's literally it. Yeah, it's a so, of wealth and power. That's how the US press is. We definitely don't have a free press in the United States. Far from it. Well, I think that's what's driven so many people to Twitter and to independent oh, yeah, reporters. Totally. I don't read the mainstream news. I get my, tw- I get no. my um, news on Twitter and Reddit. I do not... I mean, I actually looked at BBC... Honestly, uh, the BBC is the most tolerable of any of the mainstream news sites, probably maybe not to you, uh, but looking at the U.S. press, the BBC looks slightly centrist, maybe even left-leaning, <laughs> but if you look at like the New York Times, Washington Post, oh, I mean, just so much crap here, so I, I don't even, I tried to avoid any uh, mainstream U.S. news because it is terrible, but the BBC, I, not much better, um, but it's at least better than the U.S. press, as I see it. I do you know what? I don't know that it is. I'll be honest with you. We have um, the Tories have infiltrated the BBC. The Tories run the BBC. Oh, the wow, board yeah. of directors, the board of directors was largely appointed by the Tory party. One of the I don't know if he ended up standing down. Richard Sharp was is a director at the BBC. Personally arranged for Boris Johnson to have an eight hundred thousand pound loan from a man who turned out to be his cousin anyway. Talk, talk to he, me about I, your. Uh, you worked with Boris Johnson. You worked I with did. old Bojo. Tell me your tell me your experiences with Bojo. Oh, uh, I mean, it was twenty something years ago, um, around the Blunkett scandal time, because I was the patsy for that, which was fun. Being told I was a a liar and I was unprofessional for six months when that was just a cover for somebody else's affair. I'm not, I'm not um, familiar with it. Maybe my viewers might not be either. Could you go into uh, oh, the scandal? Uh, well, 
this might help. Um, there's a banking family in the US called the Fortiers. Um, they had a daughter called Kimberly, who I ended up being the PA to, and she had an affair with this man called David Blunkett and made my life a misery. But in the next, literally the next room was Boris Johnson being the editor. Um, and he was at the time having an affair with a woman who occasionally hot desked in my office. So yeah, he disappeared off to Russia even back then for jaunts that he didn't want his mistress to go with him on. Um, he, he was just, he was a person, at that point, he was a journalist and a personality and he was just sort of trying to eke his way into politics. So he was, he was just, it wasn't, I didn't get a job there because I wanted to work in politics or magazines. I just need, I got to London and I needed a decent job and that, you know, was a decent job. Um, so I, I was just there for the salary, whereas most people in that field wanted to be there because that's the circle they wanted to move in or, you know, the profession they wanted to be in. But that wasn't the case with me. And I, um, <clears throat> I, I pick up accents quite easily when I spend a lot of time with people. And I've been there about six months and I was having a rough time because this woman was just playing me for an idiot. And we had that numpty downstairs and I just, I found myself on the phone. I picked the phone up one day and I said to somebody, oh yeah, instead of hello or hi or whatever. <laughs> and I was like, I've got to get out of here. I started talking like them as well. Oh, wow. So I, I ended up handing my notice in, but I did get to tell Boris to fuck off to his face. And that is not for nothing after everything we've been through the last few years in this country. Yeah. So but, um, but well, uh, yeah. But it was it was an education I didn't realise I was getting in something I now completely understand, if you know what I mean. How has your political beliefs um, changed? You, you said you kind of have a theory, like psychology, um, maybe your yeah, struggles yeah. with illness and, and that kind of stuff kind of shaped mm -hmm. your political belief system, uh, maybe your political ideology. Maybe you could tell, uh, tell all of us, including me, since we talked a little bit about it briefly prior to the mm -hmm. pod. But yeah, talk, talk to me about your, maybe your life, um, you know, your psycho, uh, psych psychologically abusive past, um, maybe your mm -hmm. worldview and your view on politics and maybe how all that stuff relates and how it's changed over the course of your life. Um, let me see how I can wrap this into a couple of minutes. <laughs> yeah, we got plenty of time here. We got at least 20 minutes, so we got plenty of time. Go ahead and go in, into as much detail as you want. I'll let you just speak for a while. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so I, it, it all feels very weird because, like I said to you, everything seems to be connected now. I've worked most things out. But I was born to a pair of working class people who were very aspirational to be middle class but were both, um, I now understand, to be very damaged from World War II, which I'm sure is the case with gazillions of families. Um, but I grew up in between my parents, sort of defending my mum against my dad. They were both alcoholics and functional. My dad worked and eventually my mum went back to work after having me and my brother. Um, but I grew up all too quickly and sort of kind of swapped roles with my mum from like the age of six and then like when these nights would happen when I'd have to run down and defend her and my, my dad never actually was physically abusive with her but he was very torturous he, you know persuaded her she was mad and needed help and he was just a nasty nasty man who was actually probably in a lot of pain himself um and had no comprehension of why um but they were working class Tories and I was my dad was sort of quite a military man he was in the um, Territorial Army, you know, like the reserves. 
when he probably should have just gone into the army. Um, but it, he was very politically aware. He worked for the local council um, in the mayor's office. So I grew up around a lot of sort of talk about Thatcher, and I didn't, as a, as a kid, I didn't understand politics, obviously, but we had the Toxteth riots when I was growing up in Liverpool. And I think generally, at least my, my view of it is, even as bad as the UK political system is, you guys are still a lot farther left than we are in the United States. I mean, at least you have the NHS and you have some sort of welfare well, state, depends. you know? Yeah, it depends, of course. It, it depends on, on how society is doing at any one time, doesn't it? Like, I grew up in abject poverty in a time when, you know, that was the first sort of recession I experienced as a kid. And I, at the time, I genuinely didn't think it touched me because my parents, what they did to make it, to make what me and my brother, like, went through acceptable, they'd point to Africa and go, don't you dare cry that you've got no coat. There's kids in Africa that can't eat. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, I should be more grateful, shouldn't I, for, like, um, we like the way we grew up now, we, we'd be taken into care. That's how my but, parents' uh, view is, though. Like, if I complain, like, um, I, I want this, like, affordable uh, education, you know, $2 trillion student debt crisis in the United States. Or if I say, like, this is ridiculous, like, would I pay a month for health care? And she could be like, you could, you could not have health care, or maybe you wouldn't want to have went to college. Okay, sure, you know, I can't be thankful for, for what I have, but my view of politics is how is the world and how could it be better? You know, a lot of people yeah. with that Republican ideology, that conservative ideology, they always think, oh, things could be way worse. You know, you could be um, part of the global south, you know, part of the world that, you know, the Western powers exploits, robs, and plunders, you know, of course, yeah. Where, where, you know, we could be uh, in Africa, hungry and without clothes and shelter um, because of hundreds of years of European colonization of Africa. You know what I mean? Like, sure, certainly. Or we could make the country we live in better and we could stop this um, colonialism. You know, it still goes on today. Like the colonial project going on right now in Gaza. Uh, anyone that's watching it, um, you know that Israel is going to expand their borders. At some point, there's going to be nothing left of Gaza. At some point, there's going to be nothing left of Palestine. Mm-hmm. But, that, but that's the trouble, isn't it? Because it, it's it's a toxic response because it's a straw man argument. Yeah. When in fact, what we're not doing is meeting human people's needs at any fucking level. No. Because, yeah. and, and Even I don't the know why. Even the basic human needs for food, shelter, clothing, education yeah. are not met. Yeah. And yeah, we exactly. talk about the cost of living prices. I mean, the heat, uh, people are going without heating their homes in the winter, right? It's going to be a cold winter, I've read, and uh, some people aren't going to be able to afford to even heat their homes. It's ridiculous because of the energy crisis Everything. going on. It, it seems that every symptom of this wealth redistribution, let's call it, because that's what it is. It's right. not a cost of living crisis. It's a cost of fucking greed crisis of a few psychopaths. Yep. You know, there's... A handful of psychopaths. Every way they frame it in the, you know, we should be putting up and shutting up. Every symptom is contrary to the, to human biology and it's crucifying people. It's making us ill. But then when we get ill, that profits big pharma, you know, so there's money to be made from all the misery. I'm just looking at my notes now because I know that somehow there's money made from food banks. I can't quite remember how at this minute. In the UK, we've got more food banks than we have McDonald's restaurants. And you know how plentiful McDonald's are. Uh, we've got... All we can, the unit of measurement I saw uh, Biden called uh, what was going on in Gaza. Oh, 
uh, he called it like five nine elevens or something or, or whatever. He called what happened in Israel from the Gaza rocket attack or whatever like five nine elevens. Uh, and it's uh, interesting you brought up cheeseburgers because that's the only measurement the United States can understand. Units of cheeseburgers and nine eleven. That's all we all our minds can comprehend. You said uh, it was ten degrees Celsius. My mind was blown. I'm like, what does yeah. that mean? Is that hot? Is it cold? It's very I have no cold. Idea. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If you got if you got shares in fleece companies, you'll be doing well right now. Oh, cool. But we've got okay. we've, the food banks are now having to ration their supplies because they're not getting enough in because people are too broke to donate because the scale of poverty is rising up. Yeah, we've got forty uh, percent of people in work have to claim benefits. What the fuck is that about? That's capitalism not working. Is what that's about. We've got destitution has doubled in the last five years under the Tories' austerity. Two million people are destitute, and of them, one million are kids. Yep. In the sixth or seventh richest economy in the world, get in the right. fucking bin. Our pensioners, we, sorry, we were talking earlier, our pensioners received the lowest state pension in the developed world. The developed world. People who've worked for 55 years. And they sit there and do nothing about it. You shouldn't have to work multiple jobs just for the subsistence to get by. But if you're going to work a job, it shouldn't be subsidized by the government. What the United States government does, um, I can't speak for the UK, but what the United States government does is people that work at like Walmart and McDonald's, you know, who are making poverty wages, they also get, they can also sometimes, um, they can also sometimes uh, account for or uh, be receive some sort of assistance, you know, financial aid from the government, even if they work a full-time mm. job. So essentially we're subsidizing these corporations for paying, yeah. you know, poverty wages. It's, it's absurd. It's, we should demand. It's basic. You know, I mean, it, it's it, basic. There, was a, there was a big fight for the 15. I think it was like the, the battle cry here in the United States, $15 an hour, which it's still not get you a, a one bedroom apartment and food and a car and insurance anywhere in the United States. So at this point it should be fight for 50, you know I mean? Uh, we should not allow these corporations to rob, steal, exploit us. Um, they shouldn't have to work multiple jobs just for the basic necessities to get by. Capitalism as a system, as a system is incapable, again, of meeting the most basic human needs, you know, food, clothing, shelter, uh, any of that stuff, health care. Uh, of course, in the United States, you know, we have a privatized healthcare system. Well, it's not really a system. It's like a scandal. That's what they're trying to do with the NHS is um, take it away. So maybe we could talk about healthcare a little bit and you you had some in the pre-call you had some uh uh some not so nice things to say about big pharma i i am not a fan of big pharma uh the global pandemic um allowed for these you know big pharma corporations to make billions and billions of dollars so they they profit from a global pandemic it's absurd uh and all of the all of the research for these um vaccines and stuff were made public from or made possible by public dollars and university funding. So the the research and development and, and all the, the costs of that went into the vaccines were all public money, yet the profits were all private. So uh, you know, maybe talk about your story a little bit and what you learned from Big Pharma and all the different cocktails of drugs and what well, you think about it. And uh, yeah, I, I am not a fan of Big Pharma either. And I think um, yeah, I think that there shouldn't be patent rates on medications, certainly not life saving medications. Mm-hmm. I think I would get rid of patent uh, patents on these drugs. We should share this information uh, all over the world, and especially to the you know the poorer countries of the global south. Um, all patents do for big pharma is provide them with monopolistic pricing rights to maximize mm-hmm. their profits. 
and keep drugs high and unaffordable for average people? So, sort of to go back to my childhood a bit, growing up sort of in the middle of chaos as it constantly was, because I had the rough time growing up, my mum and dad fighting and me being in the middle of it, and my dad like literally freezing me out for like weeks and months at a time as a little kid. He literally wouldn't, he just blanked me. It was mental, looking back. Um, and then when I was 13, my nan, who pretty much raised me, she died of cancer. And then when I was 15, dad died of cancer. So by the time I was 16, I was fried. And I was going to the GP repeatedly and I'm not well. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm not well. And they sent me for all the tests and all the rest of it. And in the end, put me down as an attention seeker and a liar and all the rest of it. And I gave up. Um, and it was just sort of antidepressants had just sort of become mainstream and I was quite interested to think you know if there was something that could make me better but they just they wouldn't take me seriously when I went they'd send me away get fill this spreadsheet in for three months and come back and I was like at that time acutely desperate and you know they just were not helping when I was 21 I woke up in the most second most acute pain I've ever experienced in my life I had a slip disc that had come from nowhere, no injury, nothing. Um, it just appeared. And from a couple of days after that, I was on a ridiculous amount of tramadol, um, painkiller. And then... Here in the United States, there's the opioid epidemic. That's There's a pain epidemic uh, well, between low on. Uh, and that's how we, for a decade yeah. or so, treated people in chronic pain. Just, uh, you know... Give them a bunch of opioids, pump them up with opioids, you know, and now we have this well, insane addiction crisis going on here right now in the United States. Just, look, bear with, because I've only just started. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was when I was 21. And that I've been in pain every day since then to some degree or other. Um, I also got diagnosed when I was 28 with raging endometriosis, which is... Um, uh, ladies' disease when your endometrium doesn't just stay in your womb or fall out of you, it goes inside you and it creates inflammation on wherever it touches, basically. Um, so, my, like, I mean, God, I'm what nearly 20 years after I was diagnosed, but I'm my entire abdomen internally is all stuck together, my intestines are all glued, and it makes for very painful digestion and what have you. Um, so that, that created pain for me for years before I had my hysterectomy about six years ago now. Um, so between those two things, I was on antidepressants. I've been on mostly since I was 25, but I did have to attempt suicide to get taken seriously to get those antidepressants at that time. Um, and at the time, I couldn't have given a shit whether it worked or not, to be honest. Um, so between the two, my back and my endometriosis, I was on tramadol, diazepam. I was taking too much tramadol because I've been on it for so long. So they then put me on just the maximum dose of tramadol, not double that, and added morphine on top. So for about five years, I barely got out of bed with a small child to look after. It was unbelievably difficult. Um, and then skip through to what about... 2019 was when my I was I was on Prozac and I think it was 2018 I went to the mental health people psychiatrist and just said can I change it up because I'm not feeling so great it kind of felt like anxiety had really kicked in yeah and it, it's it probably hard um and they put me on something else and then that wasn't working so well so I went back and then they added something else on top and I just lost it and I'd already been struggling because apart from sort of 
being ill, being on all these drugs, I was also I've become very politically aware because I've been become unable to work and had to go into benefits. And then I'm, I'm I'm on these. Well, I mean, it's not just that the pay is low; it's trying to get them for people in in the UK. Because as I pointed out before, the government's attitude to us is just go and throw yourself off a cliff. We don't care. That's, that's how I've, I've had friends and I've had issues with unemployment in the past. That how, that's how our unemployment system is. They want to make it so difficult and tedious to get unemployment benefits and they run out after, I think, six months. And then what are you going to yeah. do? You know, you're screwed. Uh, but they want to make it such a chore, so well, tedious, this, so hard, so that, you know, you, you'd rather just look for a job than to deal with this kind of stuff. This this isn't unemployment. This is disability benefits oh, no, for people. No, yeah, I mean, yeah, no. I mean, been, all these systems, I mean, they want to make it as difficult people, as possible to get money. They want to make it as difficult as possible to get some sort of, you know, benefits that people need desperately, desperately, or they could die. Oh, look, in, in 2019, when I was at my absolutely most poorly, <clears throat> I had a social worker walk out of my house because I was angry with her. She'd lied about my disability my PIP claim as it is here disability claim she'd lied because she'd forgotten to take me to it I was three sheets to the wind which is why I needed a social worker and when I realized she'd forgotten and she came to visit me with two other people who to this day I don't know who they were but they came in my house and I was sat on the bottom stairs smashing my head against a wall because I didn't know I was in such despair and she walked out and left me with a 12 year old child and that was it that was never heard from and that's and that was when I knew that the government just wanted me dead because the, the system has just been left to rot. But what I couldn't understand at the time, and to this day, I, I still can't understand it, is that all these relatively intelligent people working in the NHS, working in social services, working in the police, working in schools, working on all these institutions, what the fuck have they been doing while this car crash is taking place apart from standing there and letting it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's – I try not to, to blame individuals, although they're certainly at fault. But, yeah, I think the system is, is the problem. You know I mean? All these hoops and hurdles and, you know, all these things that we have to do just to get, you know, the most basic of benefits as, of human rights, you know, and, and preserve people's dignity. You know, and you shouldn't have to uh, – that's a talk – Adrian Lowe, he's had all kinds of talks, you know, sure. listened to a lot of this stuff. But he says a lot of times, that, like, chronic pain, you know, all the doctors are – Telling them, you know, it's in their head. If you haven't listened to the podcast, check out the one with Adrian. Hey, yeah, no, I didn't listen to it. But, oh, sure, sure. But he, he's talking about, like, um, you know, people have to, like, convince these doctors that, yeah, there's actually something wrong with me. And a lot of times, you know, they'll say, oh, it's all in your head or this, that, or the other thing. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like, you know, what you were experiencing with the mental health or lack thereof. What do you think sure. about um, – what do you think about the NHS uh, in the UK? Obviously, they want to privatize it. The first method they do is to defund it, uh, make it work so poorly that people demand it's privatized. That's typically the neoliberal way to fund and then privatize. Um, but yeah. Yeah, what do you think about the NHS? What do you think about the safety nets in the UK society or lack thereof? And then what about the resources for mental health? You talked about suicide a little bit. Maybe you can mm-hmm. speak to suicide and mental health and the resources available for people that are struggling. I think um, we're at a bit of a crossroads with the NHS. I think to save it as was is going to be very difficult because, I mean, lest we forget, these disaster capitalists that have come in to dismantle it have written books about what they're actually doing. You know what I mean? It's not a secret. People People have been caught napping, and these people are also investors and don't give a shit. 
Um, I think the NHS is amazing, and God knows I've had to use it an awful lot. Um, and most of my experiences have been positive farmer aside. Um, but uh, capitalism is going to kill us. It's going to try. Uh, it's going to sure, try unless people fight back. I mean, they're definitely going to sure, do it unless people fight back and resist. They're definitely going short to. Of a, short of a revolution, I I really don't know what's going to happen because going back to Labour, I mean, they're already, we know that they've got donations from great big American pharma companies, but not pharma healthcare companies rather. We know that they're being employed by some of them already. It's and they're going to have to be part of the solution because there's no other way because, you know, Brexit got rid of most of our bloody medical staff because that was genius. Jesus. Um, so what's going on with Brexit too? Is that still in the works? Uh, I heard a lot of people are no, trying to done. get out of it. What's going on with it? Is it still kind yeah, of it's, 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 it's done and they couldn't have made a bigger car crash out of it. There, everything has gone to shit. The only thing we've got left is that we're still in the European Court of Human Rights and they're trying to take us out of that as well because we're being ruled by fascist psychopaths. It's it, it, nothing about Brexit makes sense. Financially, it doesn't make sense. On a humanitarian level, it doesn't make sense. It's barking. It's fiscal insanity. I think there's a lot of problems with the European Union, as there are with any systems of bureaucracy. Yeah. They're not perfect, yeah. but they have uh, there's a lot of pros, I think, to being and benefits to being in the European Union. They have good human rights standards and, and that sort of thing, um, you know, at least better than I see in, in America. But if given the choice between the psychopaths that are running the UK government and the bureaucrats that are running the European Union, yeah, my preference would be the bureaucrats in the EU exactly. Exactly. Over the psychopaths in the UK. Uh, if it was a different group of people, you know, in power in the UK, like Jeremy Corbyn and maybe some of the people that, um, you know, think like he does, and I'd be like, okay, yeah, Brexit, and let's get yeah. these people in power. Let's get out of the EU. But, um, you know, be given a choice right, between, no. you know. Jeremy, I'm sure Jeremy's a Brexiteer, you know. Oh, he is? He, he wants to get out? Oh, he, he likes the Brexit too? I think oh, he is. I don't yeah. know why. I mean, I don't think any of them expected it to be this big a car crash, yeah. but, you know, they've got idiots in charge, so. I like I like a system of government. I'm an anarchist federation, you know, states that are loosely affiliated and um, but have, you know, autonomy in their region. I don't want to see these giant nation states. I want to see them dissolved, you know. Um, but what yeah. we first have to do is dissolve the corporations that run our lives, you know, um, without without governments and um standards like OSHA, which is, or, I'm sorry, workplace standards in the, in the United States, and without like taxes and that kind of stuff, these corporations and these rich people would have no oversight. So uh, at least with, you know, governments, we can, you know, limit corporations' ability to rob and exploit us. Um, but if we get rid of the government and leave these corporate structures, we're all finished. So the EU oh. you know, is not perfect, but I would certainly rather be in the EU and run by these bureaucrats there than these corp uh, these corporations or these billionaires or, again, the psychopaths that are running um, the UK government. So giving, given a choice between those two, yeah, I would, stick, I would definitely stay in the EU for sure. Uh, and hopefully, yeah, the United States, I wouldn't mind seeing some sort of system like that in the United States. Uh, I'm sorry, in the Americas, North America in South America that we can kind of, you know, loosely affiliate with one another and, you know, maybe improve human rights standards for everyone, not just people in America, but all over, um, you know, the United States and the global South as Mexico and Latin America have been exploited for hundreds of years by the United States. Mm -hmm. So it seems like, you know, Brexit was their goal to kind of create some neoliberal 
some like modern Thatcher Reaganite uh, mini American state where everything is like privatized and human rights are whatever you can get on the market. Uh, was it some like capitalist dystopian hellhole? Is that what they are trying to create with Brexit? And um, what's the future of Brexit? Do you think the UK will ever get back into the EU fully or what's going to happen with all this stuff? Oh, I wish I could tell you. Um, I think they just, they were trying to avoid hefty new taxes that were coming in for the wealthy in the EU. That's what they were trying to avoid. I that's think awesome. there was an element. Good for I think there was That's awesome. They, that's, that kind of stuff would never get passed in the United States. Democrats and Republicans both are in opposition to raising taxes on the rich. Although the rhetoric is a little different, they barely do anything I mean, you know, sometimes Democrats increase it a little bit, but I think we're paying in the United States the lowest corporate and um, top tax rate in 50, 60, 70 years, something like that. So awesome for the EU. Good job by them. But I, I also think that when the whole Brexit thing came up, I it's just a personal hunch. think that there was an element of literally schoolboy competition between Cameron and Johnson. And I think that they thought it was okay because I don't think either of them thought we'd ever vote to leave. And when we did, they shit big because they were like, oh, oh, God, now it's real. David oh God, Cameron, it. that was the previous prime minister before Bojo, right? Uh, did Johnson come in straight after Cameron? I'm not sure. that No, Theresa May was about, wasn't she? Oh, we've had that many fucking idiots on a merry-go-round. I'm sure Theresa May came in before Johnson. What's uh What's the opinion of most people on Margaret Thatcher? I know here in uh, in America, especially on the left, people hate Reagan. But it seemed like Thatcher and Reagan they had some sort of neoliberal alliance. Their politics were pretty similar. What's What's the perception of Thatcher? She was in power a long time in the UK, wasn't she? I think um, she. I don't think she's the most hated woman in the country anymore. Uh, there's a couple that are vying for that position now. Sorella Braverman, top of the list. Um, but I, the the thing with Thatcher is, she'll never be forgiven because she set she set the trail for what for the destruction that's happening now. She set the pace for that. But what she did believe in that we don't have anymore was a certain sense of propriety and how you behave. And she, you know, she was known as Thatcher the milk snatcher, but she was she wasn't a mass murderer yeah. like these. Okay. Pricks are. She wouldn't have. She came from an era where people resigned in disgrace. That was the thing. I mean, notwithstanding, she was protecting paedophiles during her entire time yeah. as PM, but less murdery. Whereas this crowd, she, yeah, she had a sense of propriety that these psychopaths are just off the scale, don't belong in that school. Because there are still a handful of really old school Tories left that come from the Thatcher government, Michael Heseltine, for one. And they are appalled with what this band of psychopaths are doing. They don't consider them the Conservative Party to be. Well, it's morphed. It's not old school Thatcher conservatism like Labour isn't Neil Kinnock right. or Tony Blair Labour anymore. Yeah, Labour used to be the party for the working people. Labour couldn't give a shit about working people Same anymore. Same here in the Labor, United States. Labour don't even support the strikes we've had this year. And we've wow. had everyone from barristers to doctors to teachers to bus drivers to train drivers. Everyone's been striking. Consultants in hospitals are striking because people in Costa, who's, baristas who serve coffee in the UK, get paid more than junior doctors. 
go figure. Why would you spend five years at university to earn less than a fucking barista that serves coffee? And that's another reason we have a staffing crisis in the UK. The country is run by absolute morons with no foresight because they're always going to be insulated. They're always going to be protected. They're always going to have money. So it's never going to affect them. And that is the root of it. And I genuinely think that it's a global thing. Like we were saying earlier about the psychopaths sort of sorting themselves out into hierarchy. Global network. uh, No no doubt. The right wing is in power. You know, the right wing and the the so-called left isn't much different. The beauty, but the beauty of psychology, if you use that as the tool, is that grey matter doesn't grey matter and human behaviour doesn't really take into account where you come from or what colour your skin is. It's who you are. It's not about countries and borders and how much money you've got. If you're a prick, you're a prick. <laughs> if you're a psychopath doing psychopathic things, you're a psychopath. It's that simple. Let's let's transition. Right. Let's let's transition to maybe a, a little bit more softer side of things we've been doing some politics stuff for quite a while now <laughs> who are you we talked a little bit about oh, labels, all that kind of stuff now you've kind of brought it up so i'd love to go there who are you badass mother, sally sal who are you i'm just a woman who shouts on twitter um do you know what i am somebody trying to reinvent themselves i found out that i you know i had options for recovery about four years ago in 2019 when I had that horrible year and at the very end of it I learned about brain plasticity as Adrian Lowe was talking about I didn't know the brain could regrow and loads of people I've spoken to didn't know we knew that the liver could regrow and regenerate itself but not many people know the brain can too especially if you know you give it some help with some natural supplements and exercises and what have you um uh, uh, Adrian Lowe says the the most powerful pharmacy on human earth sits between our ears. I like when I like that comment. It really is too. Oh, I mean that's going to take some harnessing, but I know where he's coming from. Personally, I think they grow out the ground, but that's something else. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I basically was I had to stop working about thirteen years ago. I started out as a veterinary nurse. I did that for five years from the age of fourteen. Then I became a croupier for two years, natural career progression, I'm sure you'll agree. And when I came out of the croupier business and noticed all my friends had got married and settled down with kids and I'd been working nights for two years, I was a bit like, oh, I need a normal job. What can I do for the most money? Because I came, I pretty much checked out of school at 13. With oh, wow. Okay. Handful of, because everything was going on at home. So it just yeah. wasn't a priority to me and nobody gave a shit back then. Yeah. Um, there were no truant officers or anything like that. Literally nobody oh, gave wow. a shit. Um, so you've been a badass for a long time now, isn't that right, badass? Well, part? do you know what? I, I wasn't. I was. I was a kid who had a lot going on at home. He was emotionally traumatized and was being yeah. told it was all her own fault. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So, so I grew up with like many complexes and not, you know, pretty much asking everybody I got close to, "What the hell's wrong with me? What you know? Why? Why am I struggling with life so much?" Um. And then, yeah, so I discovered brain plasticity at the same time I discovered somatics, which is sort of the study of the nervous system within the human body. And that was when I realized that going to the GP at 16, 17 with weird feelings, thinking I was ill, was exactly what I'm feeling now, which is my nervous system on overdrive. But we're not taught about any of this. GPs don't ever mention your nervous system. You know, there's no, you don't go to a GP and come away with a holistic I want to say cure, but I don't like, you know, therapy to try because no one's making money off that, are they? But they will throw pills down us that they've got no idea what they're doing. 
That's right. You talked about uh, somatics. I haven't studied that too much. I definitely studied a lot of yeah. neuroscience. The study of the nervous system, yoga, Eastern philosophy. We talked a little bit about that in the pre-call. Maybe you can bring that stuff together. Mm. Um, yeah, I haven't studied philosophy, so I can't really speak to that. I can only speak to my own experience. Um, That's what it's kind of about, though. Eastern philosophy is kind of your mind-body connection or, I guess, you know, past, present, and future. Everything's well, all connected. Um, the power of mind and all that sort of thing, being in the present moment. So a lot of the stuff you're talking about in my studies of Eastern philosophy, you know, the world is cyclical. It kind of repeats itself. It's all inter- interconnected, all that kind of stuff. And that's kind of what yoga, I think yoga and Eastern philosophy kind of go uh, together a little bit. That's why I kind of mentioned it. But, um, you know, I think you're, you're a practitioner of Eastern philosophy, maybe even if you haven't studied it formally. Well, yeah, I mean, I am, <laughs> um, in as much as I've realised that Western philosophy and Big Pharma have, like, nearly put me in the ground, I had to find other alternatives. Um, and, yeah, the, the, how, the, if we start with, like, the compl- I've got complex post-traumatic stress disorder as one of my diagnoses, and... To try and explain it, to work it back, if you can imagine, I like I constantly feel to some extent or other right at the, at the moment like I'm stood on the edge of a cliff about to fall off. Now, my brain knows that that isn't the case. I'm sat here talking to you and I'm perfectly safe and I'm fine. But internally, there's like a buzzing. And it's my nervous system because I'm probably because I'm heightened because I am talking to you and I'm doing stuff. So I tend to spend a lot of time in bed, especially if my nervous system is ragged, because I, I find it, it's like, it's kind of like a dial as to how well I'm doing. Um, and th- like certain things can really kick it off. Like it just, I was talking to my son yesterday and we nearly sort of went out at the last minute to do something. And he was niggling about timings and stuff. And it just talking about that gave me stomach pain. Because my nervous system's like, oh, not safe, not safe, we're reaching conflict. And it's so silly. But it's 40 years of stored trauma. Because that's what happens when you, you have traumatic events. And when I was a kid, I, you know, I was brought up with the stiff upper lip of the British. You know, take it on the chin, move on, you'll be fine. Tomorrow's another day. And that's fine and well if you can do it. And I mastered it like a badass because I wanted to be good and loved because I wasn't properly. So I did everything I was told to do. Um, but then I grew up as an adult who needed permission to do anything and it was like fear but yeah it instilled a fear in me and that shit is what makes you ill because your nervous system goes on fire creates inflammation inflammation travels around your body and finds a weakness and latches onto it and mine happened to be my spine and probably my guts at some point as well. Well, my guts, my lady engine, if you will. Um, because, but that's how illness is created. Disease. The word disease is dis-ease. If you're feeling ill at ease, that's what it is. You know, when we take it back to the, the, the makings and meanings of words. And it just, it's taking me a long time. It's, it's very much, trauma's like a titration thing. It damages you sort of drip by drip, day by day especially if it's just getting piled on when you're still sort of living in the midst of narcissistic behaviors as I was. Dr. Lowe, too, you also said something about uh, someone did research on it, but I trust his research because he's very 
directed by evidence and science. But the number one predictor for how long you're going to live in life is how think how long you think you're going to live. So I think that's fascinating. People that think they're I... disease and think that they're going to die in early age. I think it's common. They often do, you know, and other people I think that think they're going to, that's, I'm trying to convince myself mentally. I'm like, you know, a lot of the great philosophers lived well into their nineties. I'm certainly no great philosopher, but I love philosophy. Noam Chomsky is one of my favorite, Immanuel Kant, uh, along a lot of these, uh, a lot of these lifelong philosophers, um, you know, not Socrates cause he was killed. <laughs> he, he, he was a dissident that went against the mainstream. So he did not die of old age, but a lot of these, um, a lot of these philosophers live late into their 90s of old age, and that's how I think I'm going to go, too. Do you know what? I um, have no issue with people having personal faith. I absolutely abhor organized religion. But I believe there's something, and I believe there's something in what you said, and I'll tell you for why. From a very early age, I had this absolute fear that I wouldn't be able to have kids. To the point that, oh God, I'm going to open myself up to a criticism here, but to the point that when I had relationships, even though I didn't want to get pregnant, I wouldn't use protection because I just, I wanted to prove myself wrong. And I never did because I ended up infertile because of the endometriosis. Oh, wow. And I, now obviously that's a, we'll never know kind of thing. Yeah. But I'm doing a part of my recovery at the moment. I'm doing, have you heard of intentions? Sure, intentions, but maybe you maybe it means something. No, no, to you. as in, but as in, like a list that you read to yourself every day that I want this, I want that, I am this, I am that. Oh, basically, reaffir- you're yeah. reaffirming stuff to yourself, which and I can't explain it, but it worked. It just does work. That the fact that I'm sitting here talking to you now, I, you know, I've grown a bit of confidence. There's something that we can't explain, but I'm bollocks if it's a man in the sky of any fucking yeah, with any happening. I, I oppose organized religion as well. I'm agnostic, so I don't think that we can ever know, you know, how the universe was created or what God even means. I do want to go back uh, to what I said about, you know, living a long life. I think it works the other way, too. I was at one point a capitalist, and, you know, I bought into all the ideologies of greed yeah. and making money. So That's I read, how we you know, raised. Literally what I, we yeah, brought up to do. It's deep into society. We're conditioned from an early age yeah, and indoctrinated. Yeah. But, yeah, I've read biographies on Warren Buffett, uh, did some documentaries on uh, Bill Gates and I read Steve Jobs' uh, biography, which was really pretty good, though. Uh, it was a national bestseller. Obviously, that stuff doesn't really interest me now anymore. I think all these people are psychopaths, especially Elon Musk. Yeah. I actually read his biography, too, one time. And, you know, I came away thinking these all, all these people are nuts, flawed individual. But I do, I do want to say in the Steve Jobs book, from an early age, he said that, you know, I'm going to be great. Uh, maybe some people say he's great, maybe some people not, but I don't think he was all that spectacular, but whatever. But he, from an early age, he said he was going to be great, do some great things in life, uh, and that he was going to die really early. And, you know, I think a lot of people would say, yeah, both of those things, uh, you know, came true. I don't know. I mean, he stole lots of people's work and exploited people, you know, to amass his fortune. But what he did die of at an early age was, uh, I think, stomach cancer. And he always, always from an early age, he always said I was going to, die early in life. So I find that very interesting. That's why I'm trying to condition myself to think you're, you're going to be a great philosopher. You're going to live a long life. So I'm trying to mentally believe it. I think there's one thing to say it. You got to believe it for it to come true. That's also what I think about the afterlife. If you think there is an afterlife or you don't, I think it's quite possible. Whatever you believe at the time of your death is what happens. I tend to think that, you know, when the light turns off, that's it. 
But I think maybe, mm. what do I know? Maybe people that so strongly believe in heaven, maybe the mind is so powerful that that's where you go. You know, if that's what you truly believe at the time of death, what I believe is the light just turns off and that's it. That's not a, I don't think that's, yeah. I don't think that's a future that anyone wants to subscribe to, but that's kind of what I think. But if maybe I could convince myself that something else is possible in the afterlife. What do you think that happens to us at, at death? What happens when we die, when the lights turn out and you close your eyes for the final time and you're whatever cremated or buried in the ground or your ashes are scattered or whatever the hell happens, maybe some insects eat you. What happens when you die? Well, do you know what? The, the weird thing is, and it's not going to make for great listening, but I agree with you. I think it's lights out. However, I think there's an interesting line of conversation to be had between people who believe what we believe, who seemingly want to work for the betterment of humanity while we're fucking here. Yes, that's and I people want. And people who believe in religion who don't really give a shit about anyone else. I, isn't that weird? There were the people that don't give a shit. Uh, the people that care all about religion. It seems like those are the people that give the least shits about the well-being of human beings. They're concerned with some yeah. magical palace in the sky in the afterlife. They're too concerned about that to, to worry about you know the millions of people around the world that are hungry, the millions of people in Gaza that are in a dystopian hellscape right now to help them. You know, people that are malnourished, people that are homeless, people that are oppressed, people that are imprisoned, uh, tortured. I mean, just so many terrible things in the world. While I'm here, I know my ability to change things is very limited, but I'd like to uh, do that more than I'd like to be focused on some magical kingdom in the clouds somewhere at, at, at afterlife. Wait, you know exactly. I mean? Tangible reality. Yes, right. That's not, which is why we need to do stuff. Well, yeah, what what is tangible reality, though? I'm a philosopher. Are we in a Are we in a simulation? Are you just a brain in the vat? Are you sure you're not dreaming uh, right now? Look, I, no, well, no, I've been saying for about five years, I want someone to smack me in the face and wake me up because this is just some sort of hellscape. But I think, I genuinely think we need two things that could make a massive change. Well, I mean, we need a few things, but we need to cap capitalism for a fucking kickoff. You Wait, reach one billion. A lot of things we can do to make it better, but I, I want a socialist society where workers own and control the means of production. That's what I want. But in no, the long you... term view, we got to make capitalism a little bit more benign. Uh, and hopefully in the long term, we can have a real socialist society where owners work and control the means of production and have a say in the workplace, have a say in the things that we dedicate our lives to. The, you know, the majority of most people's waking hours are working for some master. I think we are, we're an army of wage slaves, so that's why I like working class politics. We need to take back the workplace. Owners could, should, need to take what they deserve, and that's the means of production. Well, do you know what? I've had an idea. Uh, just to, just to go back to the other thing I was saying, the two things we need are to cap capitalism and we need psychological testing for anybody holding a position of power. Get the psychopaths in the fucking bin. Sorry. Um, where we? What was the, what was the last question? Well, I, 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 don't, I don't think I had one. I was just kind of going off there on a tangent. Let's, um, let's go to motherhood. Being a mother, you have a child. Oh, what has being a mother taught you about life? How has it changed your worldview? Wow. Do you know what? I genuinely thought, because I'd had such an adverse childhood, that I was going to be a smashing mum. <laughs> I thought, I've got it. I know exactly what not to do. I've got it nailed. And I went, in, in some ways, I went totally the other way. Um, you know, I, because I wanted, he had to have everything new and 
all the best things. I mean, mainly when he was little and a baby, um, but he's never, ever gone without because I know what that feels like and I didn't want it for him. Whereas in hindsight, moderation is always key. I now understand. And, you know, a bit of give and take is always better than just give, give, give. Because, um, yeah, now I've got a 17-year-old that um, we have a difficult relationship. I like to be respected and he's not so keen on that sometimes. So, but don't get me wrong, he's a good kid. and I just have this horrible perfectionist attitude, which is why he's also a bronze medal MMA world title holder. Wow. So let's talk about that. That's a great transition. Let's finish up with sports here. I think, I think I, I used to be obsessed with sports. I used to love football. What's going on right now. It's, it's gone on in the background. I don't even care. I, most Sundays now I don't even watch football. I used to be obsessed with NFL Sundays every week. Now it's, you know, I'm probably going to go to the beach later. I could care less about it. I think it's a distraction. I think so many, so much resources are dedicated to sports in this country to distract us from the issues that really matter. Of course, sports are entertaining, and of course, sports can build character. And of course, physical fitness, I think, is a positive thing. You know, exercise and competition, uh, as long as it's not competition for resources like food and shelter, but competition athletically, I think it's not a bad thing. Um, but I think there's way too much emphasis, way too much distraction, way too much time, energy, wealth, and resources that are dedicated to you know sports in this country and the world like the olympics for example you know the olympic village and all the olympic facilities that were built in rio de janeiro um you know maybe a couple blocks away from some of the most poor and um yeah underdeveloped uh, cities in the world you know people are starving and homeless and yet they're building these multi-million dollar sports venues there you know the poverty in brazil is absurd and a lot of the reason is for you know u.s U.S. policy and U.S. economic um, practices are, are the reason in the cost for it. But, anyways, I digress. This is about, this is this show is about you, and I like MMA too. It's fascinating. I love when it's on. Uh, it's fascinating. I think it's a lot of those people. I think are are desperate and grew up fighting. You know, and they're they're putting their bodies on the line. They're risking serious injury here for example i think it was in the uk or at least in europe yesterday last night a hockey player died in a freak accident. Got cut. Um, the skate in the throat and died on the ice or at least going to the yeah check it out uh i can send it to you no? But, um, yeah no i don't have the video but i just have the article um yeah he, he used to play for the pittsburgh penguins um and that's the only reason it came up on my news feed because that's one of the teams i used to follow at least um but yeah he died in action last night got cut in the throat so dangerous things in mma i mean people get bloodied and beat to a pulp so let's kind of all these things you know boxers have died in the ring box or i think players have died on football fields and in football practices across the country um soccer probably not quite as dangerous but i'm sure you know concussions from headers and footers and that sort of thing um, taking take one off the noggin so do you know what go ahead i'm pretty i'm pretty sure in this in the i'm pretty sure so don't quote me on this but I think the majority of deaths on the football pitch come from heart attacks, and it's usually from undiagnosed weak hearts. But the, oh, we've wow. had a few. Okay. Yeah. I believe it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. It happens all the time, and there's millions. It's the most popular sport in the world. But um, I think the great there's a poet in Rome that said, "Give the people." Uh, bread and circuses, you know, distract them with this gladiator stuff. These are modern gladiators. So I think MMA, again, it's entertaining. I'm glad that I'm not an MMA fighter because, you know, I wouldn't last very long. I'm too soft at this point in my life. I'm too comfortable. Uh, I don't have that desire to beat up someone physically uh, and certainly put my life on the line and get in that octagon. Uh, but, again, it's entertaining, and I do think that it, it provides some benefit, at least athletically, and to stay in shape. But Sally, badass mother, 
What do you think? You love <laughs> MMA? You love sports? Your son competes uh, in MMA. He's obviously competing at a high level. How do you think I, yeah. um, sports and society, and how does that all play into our political landscape? Well, from my perspective, um, I was raised in a rugby club. It was where we were when we weren't at home because uh, my mum and dad were drinkers and on the committees, they didn't actually do the sport. So I was a very overweight kid because everything we got fed was deep fried out the freezer. And I got bullied mercilessly at school. So at the age of, I think, 13, I, I sort of I took up an opportunity to go and train with the women's team and lost all my weight, became quite feared at school because I'd had enough of being bullied. <laughs> So I suddenly gained respect overnight from almost everyone. And finding sport just worked for me. Um, the social aspect of it was an, a great education, really. You know, everything's a double-edged sword. And as much as it might not have been a healthy environment for as much time as we were forced to spend there, it did sort of give me a payoff. Um, and at 21, I became the first female rugby union manager in the country that was paid to do the job, um, which is no small feat in that patriarchal type of sport at that age. But I did it and then I burned out after a year. But my son was um, getting bullied at school because he was the big tall kid in his class. Um, he wasn't particularly overweight, but he was just a big kid and a lot of his classmates were little lads who knew that he'd never hurt them, so they used to kick shit out of him. And he used to go out of school sobbing. I'd say to him, look, tell them, stop hitting me. And if they don't, hit them back. You know, you've warned them. But, and then when you hit them, they'll stop doing it. And he came out of school at the age of 10 one day, absolutely sobbing because he'd hit his friend, because his mate was booting him. And I just thought, he's so sorry. Because I sort of grew up, I don't like to say on the streets, because I come from quite a nice area, but I was doing all sorts going out on my own at very silly ages when I shouldn't have been allowed because nobody gave a shit. Um, so I kind of was streetwise where he was very much not. Again, going back to the parenting thing, I guess. Um, and we tried, I tried to get him into rugby and he wasn't interested in that. And he's got some, um, he's got processing dyslexia. So learning stuff takes him quite a while. And we happened to be walking distance from an MMA gym. Now at, at that time, I'm going back to seven years ago. I didn't know what MMA was. I was into boxing when I was a teenager, and it was all that was on TV, really. I like boxing, uh, but, too. Yeah, I like boxing, too. I, yeah. I enjoyed it, yeah. But, like, going back to, you know, sort of Frank Bruno to Chris Eubank was when I was into it. I like Mike Tyson. <laughs> I was I saw the heyday of Mike Tyson. It was pretty awesome. Uh, he oh, was bless a bad him. mf'er, for sure. The, the baddest man on the planet for a little bit. Man, I've seen so many, so many of his knockout videos. Uh, I, would, I don't know how much money it would take, but I would never get in the ring with uh, Mike Tyson in his prime. Holy cow. Well, but I mean, I was I was quite daunted by it because I looked it up on the internet and it was like, oh, martial arts, okay. And it was something I quite fancied doing when I was younger, but obviously never did. So I thought, well, he needs to defend himself. Where better to take him? And we went down like to this local gym, and um, it was it was it was incredible. I'd never seen physical movement like it, and at the time, I wasn't very well myself. And there was a great gang of kids because Will's an only child, so it's quite he's quite a solitary. You know, he's, he's good spending time on his own kind of things, but that can lead to isolation issues. So I wanted him to be socialised other than school. Yeah, sports. Um, yeah, sports definitely allow kids to socialise and be on. A but team. also, he, you know, that's as, as, as an stuff. only 
as an only child, he'd never had really any physical contact with other kids. I'm he'd never like had any too. rough and tumble. Yeah, I'm, I'm an only huh? child too, so I think sports definitely allowed me to kind of socialize. You know, I always grew up yeah. loved my alone time and playing with myself. Without sports, yeah, yeah. probably be a lot different. So yeah, I I don't want to badmouth sports because I I love sports for so much of my life. I just think professionally, so much time, money, and resources are directed to them when they could definitely be directed to other things. But I think in a child's development and part of their social. Uh, development and meeting friends and being part of some sort of team, some sort of, sort of group of people, and you belong together. I think they're all great things. So certainly, it, as it relates, it's not to just that, a socialize. It's not just a socialization, though, is it? Because it, it gives them discipline. You know, you have to respect your coach whether you want to or not, or you're at the gym. Do you know what I mean? It, it's MMA for me. I just fell in love with it immediately, and I'm still obsessed with it. It's, well, I'm an anarchist here, so that's where I'll push back a little bit. I don't know about authoritarian relationships, hierarchies. But, yeah, I certainly think, you know, a coach or someone that is more knowledgeable about a sport, you, have, you should probably respect their their knowledge. But, yeah, I, 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 as an anarchist, the whole coaching dynamic and the whole manager and the whole hierarchy, I like to push back against that stuff because I don't like uh, systems of power where some are above others, even when it relates to coaching. But I agree. There's no doubt about it that it teaches discipline, which is one of the reasons those in power love sports because it teaches discipline. It teaches obedience, you know, so it fits people into a mold. You have to learn discipline and respect, and you're more obedient. And, um, you know, that sort of thing. I think it's part of the conditioning process here. So okay. I have to push back a little bit on the discipline stuff because that's why the ruling class likes sports. Okay. Can I just go back and edit what I said into being self-discipline? Self-discipline. So I don't like to edit stuff. So, yeah, self-discipline. Total, total agreement. It does teach you. You need someone to teach you about sports and self-discipline. And, yeah, you need a coach. I think you need a coach. It doesn't have to be an authoritarian relationship. But, yeah, someone that's knowledgeable. Maybe your son just walking into an MMA gym and doesn't know a punching bag from a whatever, a Smith machine or something like that. Yeah, it's, it's definitely great that someone has experience to show them what to do. And, yeah, teach them that self-discipline. I think that that is – the best way for freedom, you know, self-discipline. That's the, the, the path to freedom is having good self-discipline. The other thing I'll say about MMA with with kids, because I know it's a contentious subject, is that in the UK, certainly, under-16s have certain, it's, it's MMA, MMA category C, they have to have shin pads on, they have to have regulation gloves on, and they're not allowed to hit above the head, and there are certain jits moves they're not allowed to do, because... You know, nobody wants kids to get damaged. Yeah, yeah. But but what it what it was for me, and it was what I found in rugby that I knew Will would find in MMA, is that it's not it's not so much that you're going to be better at competing or to compete. In fact, I, I didn't go into it with him competing in mind. I wanted him to be able to walk around with the confidence of somebody who knows they can protect themselves, which is what rugby gave me. Just yeah. because I knew I was I was capable and I was hard. Yeah. So yeah. the world is a violent place, a very violent place. Certainly yeah. the, the Palestinians know that. And so, so certainly the Ukrainians know that the, the world is a violent place. But even, yeah, in college or in, 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 in grade school, yeah, kids can be brutal. I mean, young boys and that sort of thing. So being able to defend yourself, that's also a positive. Certainly you want to, you, you wouldn't want to use it aggressively to hurt someone or to gain power, you know, that sort of thing. But, you often, but yeah, when you, you get don't need on, to, you need to be able to protect because, yourself and have that confidence that, hey, don't don't push my buttons here. If you keep messing with me, I'm going to hit you back, you know? Well, I mean, that's Will actually had that when he got to senior school, unfortunately. Um, one of the rugby lads who was determined to 
have a fight with him. And Will's not a fighter at all. It's not in his nature, which is why he was so uh, upset in the first instance of the bullying. Um, but we had to toughen him up a bit. And he ended up, it, it was very, he, he did it for four years and then the pandemic came along and his GCSEs happened. So he's, he's not doing it at the minute. Um, but he did it for four years and he went to the IMAPs and got beaten by two Americans. Bloody wrestling. Um, but it, I just I just think it's great for kids. And the, the kids who do it aren't the problem kids. In my experience, it's the kids that aren't doing it who haven't got any discipline, who just, you know, and often they come from, you know, rough backgrounds and difficult parentings. And you'll never find a nasty kid who has a great home life, you know. I do want to say that, yeah, sports can be dangerous, but they're also a positive. I just want to make mention, uh, ex-NHL player Adam Johnson dies after being slashed by skate. This is uh, ABC News. Uh, this was, let's see, October 29th. So it was last night, former NHL player Adam Johnson died after freak accident, in quotes, during his English team's game Saturday. He was 29. He played for the Nottingham Panthers. So died last night being slashed in the throat by a skate freak accident. So R.I.P. <laughs> Adam Johnson. So he was on tour from Nottingham? That's right. Sure. Yeah, so anyways, RIP, I don't want to make light of it. I do want to get the facts out there if anyone's interested in the story. Check it out. But yeah, sports can be dangerous. People can die. They also do a lot of positive things. So I don't want to I don't want to make mention or I don't want to end on such a down note. So let's end on a positive note, though. Uh, you know, your, your son got a lot of um, self-discipline and, you know, found found a, maybe his calling. He's very good at what he does. That's a great thing. Where, what's your calling, Sally? What's your calling, badass mother? What's the meaning of life? What's it all about? What are we doing here? That's my last question. We got less than three minutes, so wrap it all up in three minutes. <laughs> what are we doing here? Um. Oh my Gideon, do you know what? I wish I knew the answer to that. Um. I I think what we should be doing is trying to make humanity evolve better because we seem to be in a race to the bottom at the minute. We are. I think we're racing to the bottom, aren't we? We're seeing how how bad we can be to one another. It seems like. I I we think we. We need psychological and IQ tests for people who take positions of power, not just being voted in. Um, and I think most senior politicians in the West should be in prison right now. Yeah, there's a book by Thomas Piketty. Uh, it's Why Save the Bankers. And it's basically his argument is that we shouldn't. Yeah. And I'll go one step further. Instead of saving the bankers, let's throw them in jail. <laughs> there is no fiscal sense to be made from giving bankers money. No. There is fiscal sense to be giving it to the people at the bottom of society who will spend it in the economy because right. that's how Definitely. it fucking works. The banking <laughs> cartel, you know, the banking cartel, the oil cartel, the drug cartel, they're all one mm. and the same. They're all cartels. Uh, we're, we got to wrap it up here. We got less than three oh, minutes. Thank you. Sally Dodgson, Sal, badass mother of the stage is yours. Where can people find you? Do you have anything else to say? Do you have anything else to promote? Go ahead. The stage is yours. We got less than two minutes. I don't. I just want to get out there and talk a lot about how politics is destroying civilization um, and how we need to change it. That's that's literally what I'm trying to do with myself at the minute because it's driving me nuts. And if I don't do something about it, it'll drive me more nuts. That's where I found so it. That, right? That's on me. Badass mother on Twitter. Yeah. Badass mother. Yeah. That's, that's badass mother with a U on Twitter. Hopefully, uh, hopefully this Twitter ship doesn't go down in a. In a blaze of glory, man, is Elon trying to destroy it as much as possible, and he's doing a great job. I wish he would just leave us alone, don't you? Yeah, I, I just again, somebody with too much money and not enough sense. <laughs> he could have, he could have made everything so much better, and he just hasn't. 
No. No, those, uh, the rich and powerful always make things worse for the rest of us. So that's kind of mm-hmm. the way it goes. Sally, badass mother, it was a pleasure. Uh, let's catch Thank you, you for the time. opportunity. Awesome. Have, have, bye-bye. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Bye-bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening to Necessary Illusions. also want to thank my special guest, Sally Dodson, a.k.a. Badass Mother from the U.K. We had a great discussion on a multitude of topics, and you can find her on Twitter. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out.